So I had no idea that I had a really defective thought process, either that victimized me or justified me. And I never knew that is alcoholism, that thinking process that takes you away from any rational thought of, of looking after yourself is the very definition of an alcoholic brain. So I'd say it was the last two years of my drinking that I knew I was drinking too much, but I didn't care. You know, I would have happily thrown myself off a cliff because I was so unhappy. Suicide by liquid death, really. Welcome to The Tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 114. My name is Janet Goron. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last six years, we've helped hundreds of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we learned from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. And each week we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. I have lost over, and not by not trying it, I have lost over this last, well, four months almost now, I've lost uh, two kilos, which, you know, and it's two kilos in a great way. It's come yeah. off the waist, yeah. if you can imagine. Um, not the face, like, you know, when you're not very well, where it comes from everywhere you don't want it to come from. It's, it's, that's, that's, that's the latest benefit. So if you want to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. As we ditch the booze, we have to learn to navigate our alcohol-drenched world without it. And we often say that we're on a journey. My guest this week got sober and then decided to embark on a physical journey from Mexico to Canada on foot, 2,500 miles. For five months, she walked. And what made it even more interesting was she applied the lessons from her recovery to the walk and then wrote a book about it. My guest likes to use her trail name, which is Person Irresponsible, PI for short. So I asked PI to introduce herself. Well, morning, morning, Jan. It's uh, it's great to be here, and it's a freezing cold morning. I think it's about naught degrees at the moment, and uh, and I am I'm in a very good mood. I'm um, sober. I've woken up sober. I was sober yesterday. And so that's adding to the running clock. It's uh, it's a good um, five and a half years now. Where does the time go? And I'm in England. I live in a, a very pretty little village. And uh, 
you know, and it's got all thatched cottages and it's just so picture postcard. But at the centre of this village, there's a beautiful green. At the centre of the green, there's a wonderful oak tree. And under the oak tree, there's a park bench. And uh, and these days, because I've written a book, everybody now knows I'm a recovering alcoholic. So I don't sit on the park bench because I'd all say, there's the park bench drunk. And uh, <laughs> and they'd be right, except for the fact that I haven't had a drink for several years now, which I am enormously proud of. Well, so you should be. Well done you. That's, that's quite an achievement. So as you've mentioned your sobriety already several times, let, let's go there, shall we? Mm-hmm. Um, and then let, shall we let your villagers know even more about your story? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so take take us back to the beginning of the story. What age were you when you had your first drink? I had my first glass of wine, and wine was the biggest part of my drinking career. Um, aged seven, uh, because my I know my mother believed that if you you gave children alcohol, they would not grow up to be alcoholic, um, which is a very flawed philosophy. And clearly, I am the evidence of that. Um, I didn't like it, you know. I, I looking back, I don't think I liked much about my drinking. Uh, but, I, you know, so it didn't really, I didn't have that instant, wow, I found the elixir of life or anything. I really didn't like it, but it was always available um, and it was it was always around the house. Looking back, that's a clue in itself of the kind of upbringing I had. And uh, and I don't know if alcoholics are born or made, but I, I am evidence for, for both sides of the argument, really. Um, so teenage drinking was, it was there. I, I can remember a few incidences. But it wasn't quite the great obsession that I've known it to be for some teenagers, which again fed into denial, really. So it was only when I was in my early 20s when I discovered that drinking on my own felt so good. I always felt slightly uncomfortable in groups and slightly self-conscious and, you know, I just the stress of having to interact with people all day, every day. So I used to love it when I could go home with a nice bottle of white Grenache, as I thought I was so sophisticated drinking, pour myself a glass of wine. And and within a few months, I realised that one bottle was not enough. Now, this stuff was like 9% alcohol. It's amazing how we all know exactly what the digits are in booze, isn't it? And so very quickly, within a few months, it had crept up to sort of, I was buying two bottles on a Friday night. And within a few more months, I was drinking Friday and Saturday. And then it stabilised for quite a while because that was my routine. You know, I knew not to drink on a school night. I didn't particularly get hangovers in those days. But I'd already had started that reaction of one was never quite enough. And there was this itchy, uncomfortable feeling if I didn't, you know, that was slightly unsatiable. And so, yes, I was having to go to bed, you know, and falling asleep to stop my drinking on a weekend. It really accelerated in my mid-twenties when I met my now ex-husband. And he was 10 years older than me and his drinking was far more sophisticated, inverted commas, than mine. And that gave me that permission to break some of my taboos. You know, so I started drinking midweek and I'd moved to Russia by then and I started drinking more potent stuff. You know, in, in Russia, it was very, very cheap. Russian-based alcohol was very cheap. So you had this gin tonica gin and tonic but it was very sweet and that that was pretty lethal and then of course there was the vodka and, and various other bits and bobs and so again a lot of my drinking hid behind his drinking I used him to give me permission to drink um, and he was always up for a drink so I kind of normalized it because I'd grown up in a high drinking environment I married a high drinker I never realized those two things are connected <laughs> you know that we recreate our comfort zone even though our comfort zones can be quite dangerous 
And that I, of course, was this, you know, budding, I mean, I was already alcoholic, but it was early days in those days. And so I still, I always believed my drinking was normal. You weren't really worried at that point. No, not at all. No, no I it was, was just somebody normal, that was yeah. growing up. That, that's the way I yeah. described it. I was someone that carried on living as if I was at university long after I left university. What were you up to in Russia, if I can ask? Yeah, I was teaching English. I, I went out there teaching English and ended up in teacher training and all sorts of other fascinating things. So, again, yeah. a bit of late, you know, there was a lot of late starts to that job, which was fine. You know, it was easy to mask the hangovers. And so, when did you start getting worried? Funnily enough, I never really did. I mean, you know, I carried on drinking. I started to become vaguely aware. There were incidences. I'd call them sort of moments of insight, and then I'd talk myself out of them. Mm. So, and it's only when I look back and I think, "My goodness me!" You know, that is denial is a thick beast to cut through. Because I hung out, and I didn't. Again, I didn't realize this until I got into recovery. I self-selected other heavy drinkers to mask my own drinking. I didn't hang around with normal drinkers. I didn't hang around with teetotalers because that would have made me uncomfortable. Did you try and cut down? Did you start making the rules? I had all sorts of rules. I had definitely had yeah. rules. I mean, if you drank before six, you were an alcoholic. If you drank after six, you were perfectly sophisticated, darling. You know, that was absolutely fine. You know, so I did start having rules and, and the hangovers were sort of, you know, started to kick in in my late 30s. I knew really, I mean, it was when my, my marriage collapsed very abruptly, very, very suddenly. I... I had this 10-day gap where I was saying to myself, do not drink on this because you will never stop. I just knew. And then after 10 days, I, I picked up that first bottle of wine and that was it. There was no restraint whatsoever. So although I still had my six o'clock rule, I was drinking most days of the week and I was drinking to blackout um, or pass out, really. And I knew that wasn't healthy. But of course, I had him to blame. He's making me do this. And that's how I truly genuinely thought. So I had no idea that I had a really defective thought process, either that victimized me or justified me. And I never knew that is alcoholism, that thinking process. Yeah. It takes you away from any rational thought of, of looking after yourself is the very definition of an alcoholic brain. So I'd say it was the last two years of my drinking that I knew I was drinking too much, but I didn't care. You know, I would have yeah. happily thrown myself off a cliff because I was so unhappy. Suicide by liquid death, really. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. So how long? That, that was a couple of years. And then yeah. what happened? I'd moved to Scotland and I'd got a job and... That was fine. That sort of reigned in my drinking on a school night. So I was back to my sort of weekend drinking. The job was only four days a week. So my weekends were, you know, above average in terms of time. Um, so my drinking was still very intense and, and dangerous. And, you know, I started falling down the stairs and I'd, I'd split my lip open. I'd broken my finger and I never went to hospital, you know. So things were getting worse um, in terms of my ability to, you know, look after myself. And I remember something in my brain was telling me to read a book by Marion Keyes called Rachel's Holiday. I do not read anything by Marion Keyes. I just generally don't read romance or chiclet or, you know, it's not my genre at all. And I now know that something in me was looking for identification, that something was looking for reinsurance that I wasn't that bad, you know, that same old practice. Thank God we live in the age we do. You can just download it on Kindle. And I, and I read it. And what's remarkable is because of my drinking at that time and where my head was, 
I used to struggle to follow any kind of theme from one paragraph to another. You know, my ability to read had really, really fallen through the floor. And yet I'd managed to read this book. And at the end of this book, thank God, Marion had written about Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember reading that and thinking, you know what, I'll ring that helpline and just get them to tell me that my drinking's okay and that they understand, you know, <laughs> again, you know, looking for that denial. And I couldn't believe it. It was sort of gone 11 o'clock at night, you know, so I'm still trying to sabotage my own health, thinking no, nobody's going to answer the phone at 11 o'clock at night. And of course they did, you know, it's a 24-hour helpline and somebody answered the phone and somebody talked to me about my drinking and about her drinking. And at the end of it, she said, I said look, she said, it sounds to me like you've got your head around step one I didn't know what she was talking about why didn't you go to a meeting and it was like yeah yeah okay okay you know sort of wow you know I didn't hear what I wanted to hear um but I'm quite good if I make a promise I'm generally quite good at keeping it I was my drinking had taken at the stage where I was missing appointments and, and it was having impact but on the whole I'm generally quite religious about sticking to appointments so I promised her I'd go on the Sunday now this was on the Thursday I had somewhere to be on the Saturday morning, which I really needed to be at. So I knew I couldn't drink on the Friday because otherwise I'd never make it on the Saturday. The plan, as I had the plan, was, you know, this is now Thursday night. Friday, no drinking because of this appointment on Saturday. And then Saturday, I was going to get absolutely pie-eyed. You know, I was going to have my farewell alcohol party of one. The same repetitive music on YouTube going around and around. And my grand plan was to stop drinking for 28 days. And AA was going to do that for me. And, uh, <laughs> and my plan went instantly wrong. I didn't drink on the Friday. I went on the Saturday. And somebody very casually said, you know what? I think you've got a drinking problem. And I was, I was like, my mind was blown. It was like, I mean, obviously now looking back, you can tell, you know, when we drink, our hair gets a bit greasy, we get very red faced. We have all sorts of bloated, sort of puffy faces and things like that. And it was just like, this is scary. You know, this is too much of a coincidence. And I was so shocked by that. I didn't drink Saturday night. And I went to a, I mean, I could have gone to an AA meeting looking back, but I didn't, of course, because my plan was to go Sunday. And I walked into my first AA meeting on the Sunday. And this was up in Scotland. I mean, I'd love to tell you everything I heard made total sense, but I couldn't understand the accent. I couldn't understand a word that they were saying. But I'll tell you this, the love and the laughter and their bright shining eyes and the fact that they did not look how I imagined alcoholics must look surely you know and it was largely it was almost all men in fact I think that first meeting was all men and so I didn't have that identification I didn't have that oh hallelujah I'm home or anything like that but what I did get I mean I cried like a baby there was no there was no stopping the tears I couldn't understand what a nice girl like me was doing in a place like this but also thinking if they only knew how awful I was, they'd hate me too. You know, I couldn't, I had that really conflict of how I felt about myself. And and uh, and I sat there and I could just about pick out various words. And, and in Scotland, they do a proper hardcore step one, which I've never really seen in this part of England that I'm now living in. But they all looked at me and they all talked to me. And, and the, you know, they gave me some really basic suggestions, which I did decipher, which was, you got to 40 meetings. Oh, sorry, you got to 30 meetings in 30 days. I was like, blimey, that's a bit excessive. I was thinking maybe Wednesday or Thursday, I'm going to check the TV schedule, see which one is worse. And and then some other really big bloke with tattoos was going on about it's the first drink that does the damage. And I'm thinking, no, it's about the eighth or ninth. That's when I fall down the stairs. And other people saying, you know, don't worry about the God thing. They don't believe in the God and it's just good orderly direction and group of drunks. And I was like, I have no idea what you're going on about. But I just remember at some point in that meeting, I relaxed. And I don't think I'd relaxed for years. There was a special 
sense of safety in that meeting amongst those strangers that all looked like they'd just come out of prison to my eyes, you know. But there was something that was undeniable. And when I went home that night, I I couldn't believe that I wasn't climbing the walls wanting to drink. And so by then I'd clocked up a few days, you know. And then the next day I woke up and I remember thinking, I can sit here thinking about not drinking all day or I can go to one of their stupid meetings tonight. And just by making that commitment to go to that meeting that night, I could focus on the other stuff I needed to do that day. And I went to a meeting and I literally did that and made that decision one day at a time. And I went to a meeting, not because anyone told me to go to 30 meetings in 30 days, but because I knew it was working right from the get-go. I didn't drink. And all I wanted was my 28 days. Mm -hmm. And I got to day 28, and I learned. By then, I'd figured out you get these little coins for doing 30 days. So I wanted my little coin. So I got my 30 I did 30 days, and as I went to pick it up, this Scottish voice went, and now you do 60 and 60, and I was like, blimey. And yet I made that decision. Like I knew I felt physically better. Like straight away you do, you're, you know, you've got vitality. You can get out of bed in the morning. It's just, you know, it's just life is so much easier. I can do the housework without having to drown in sweat and and do more than one room a day. (laughs) You know, I can do loads of rooms all in a compressed time. And I had free time to do stuff and I didn't know what to do with my free time. You know, I could have hobbies. And so I went to my 60 and 60 and then I got my second chip. And I never told anybody that this, you know, I wasn't an alcoholic. I was just, you know, I just had a drinking problem. So I wasn't really paying attention or really listening. But I loved the stories. I loved all the drama of their stories. And then when they talked about the solution, I was a bit, yeah, that's a bit boring. But just keep with the war stories, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And you were sharing your story. Absolutely, you know, and yeah, yeah. my story was more tragic than everybody else's, and it was all about me, and <laughs> and I wasn't getting it, but I did at least get my my sixty and sixty day chip, and and then somebody said, "Now nah, you're doing ninety and ninety and I was like, "You're having a laugh," you know. Is this just? I mean, I just don't have to go to a meeting a day for the rest of my life, and uh, and I relapsed on day seventy two because I wasn't listening, and because I hadn't got it, and I had my one night special. On June the 4th, or I think it was June the 3rd, looking back, a one-night special, uh, which involved, it was mad. That whole night was mad. I drove from Edinburgh to England in the middle of the night, which, you know, it's a few hundred miles to drive, which is not normal, just to buy alcohol in the middle of the night. In Scotland, you can't buy alcohol after 10 o'clock. And I'd had some bad news about nine o'clock and I'd sat there holding on to the power of the coffee table to get me through to 10. Then the shops would close. Then I wouldn't be able to drink and then I wouldn't relapse and everything would be fine. And at one minute past 10, I jumped in my car, drove to England and bought, went to buy wine, realised the insanity of my behaviour. So drove back home and then decided, no, I definitely needed wine and drove back. And I just bounced across this border until four o'clock in the morning. I'd stopped smoking seven months before. And so I bought a packet of cigarettes and drove around with this packet of cigarettes on the seat, too terrified to smoke, thinking I'd crashed the car. At four o'clock in the morning, I parked up at the river by my house in Musselburgh, lit the cigarettes, was sick. But, you know, like all alcoholics, you go, you push through this, you know. So I lit another cigarette and lit another until I could smoke you know, again, I forced my way through and uh, and I hadn't got any booze. I was like, no, this is a good thing. And then at six o'clock, I walked across the road from my house, went into the off-license, bought some booze and walked across. And I still wouldn't drink it until six o'clock that night because I didn't want to be an alcoholic. And that still was my definition. And then 
cracked open the booze, poured a glass of wine. It was like drinking cat's piss. I, I, it was revolting. It was like drinking that first glass of wine when I was seven. It was hideous. And it did nothing. It gave me no respite from the frenzy of emotions that I was feeling. So, of course, to be sure, to be sure, I drank a second glass of wine and it had no reaction, no chain reaction that I was so used. Alcohol used to give me relief and this gave me no relief. And I knew alcohol and I hated AA. They had ruined my drinking. And, and anybody would understand that on this news, I needed to drink. And now they've destroyed that too. They've taken that away from me. And I was so mad. I went to a meeting to tell them. And I heard the share that I needed to hear. I heard someone talk about how I drank and how I felt inside when I drank. And it was like, oh my God, if you're an alcoholic and you're saying you're an alcoholic, then that makes me an alcoholic. And and the the, the plugs were ripped out of my ear that night. And I've stuck with AA ever since and I've worked on recovery ever since I'd love to say it's been a walk in the park but that would be a complete lie um I love to say that the desire to drink had left immediately that would be a complete lie as well let I've... me just ask you uh, how you felt when you accepted finally that you were an alcoholic was that a feeling of relief no sadness no, or... bewilderment like yeah. total bewilderment because it, it it totally, for the first time in my life, I understood what an alcoholic was. And it totally undermined everything that I'd ever been told about alcohol. I'd always been told alcohol was, or alcoholics were very weak people who were to be condemned and judged and pitied. And so here I was trying to wrap my head around the fact, you know, so I was bewildered for a long time. I used to wake up and go, I'm an alcoholic. I really am. According to them, I'm an alcoholic. I really am an alcoholic. And I'd just be baffled. But I could accept it because everything they said, I experienced. Mm-hmm. But it, but I had always been told by somebody that I now know abused alcohol within my own family, it was a willpower problem. And these, and it was an other there, it was an over there problem. It was not something that affected, you know. And I bought that. I bought yeah. everything about alcohol and drinking. I bought the bullshit hook line yeah. I mean I could accept it you know almost superficially I could accept it it took a long time for me to, to truly concede to my innermost self not in the sense of I was in denial but in the sense of having to unpack everything I'd been told about booze and everything yeah. I'd been about booze you are listening to a podcast from tribe sober it's amazing how powerful labels are, though, the, the fact that you resisted for so long, you know, even though you'd been sitting in all those AA meetings. I mean, really, what does it matter, you know, whether we're unalcoholic or not? If we're worried about our drinking, then we need to try and make a change. It's as simple as that. Mm. You know, and for some people, that just might be a few too many glasses once a week. But if they worry about it, then then take a step towards fixing it Mm. so wow well that's pretty fascinating story did you have more relapses no that was the last one to date and i don't plan on any more no but i do buy into that philosophy that now that i know i've got this reaction and this disease and this skewed thinking within me it can reactivate at any time so i do remain very vigilant i have had some pretty phenomenal cravings over the time where I've I've had literally seconds to pick up the phone rather than going out and buying a drink. Now, I'm lucky I don't have booze in the house, so I mm-hmm. do have that additional time where yeah. 
when you know and these frenzied moments if you like they get fewer and fewer over the year and that's certainly been my experience so and I think I had a big one in 2018 and and I'd been quad biking around Scotland I love quad bikes and I had quad biked around Scotland and my quad bike had blown up and I'd ended up in Oban in this hotel and it was bang opposite an off license and you know with the neon lights flashing at you and I remember thinking I just want to check out for a bit you know it's been a really stressful day I really want to check out and thankfully I picked up the phone to my sponsor who bless her she had young children and she was able to stop everything and talk to me for a good 25 minutes and just get you know break the spell and that's all she did for me it was magic and then as recently as last December you know I had an amazing 2020 and and I, I you know I was on such a high at the end of 2020 as well and I'd gone to a Christmas day meeting I'm not a big Christmas fan so I often go to like a an inner city Christmas AA meeting just to be part of the scene and just to be there just perhaps you know for any newcomers because Christmas can be a tough day for lots of people and so it's it's part service but it's part gets me out the house and why wouldn't I and I'd gone to this meeting and I'm you know it'd been a really nice meeting really well done by people and um and then I'd come home and I had this most out of the blue phenomenal need to drink to the point that I I was so glad I lived in the middle of nowhere because it was I'm going to have to get in the car and I, but I didn't even feel safe that I could drive anywhere you know because I knew I was just I was just in that frenzied moment and thankfully I've been in you know sobriety a while and I literally got a piece of paper as I've been shown and I write out I just take that time to write out and the 10th the reason was I don't want less sobriety than that you know that person that annoys me over there I don't want to have to tell them or oh, I relapsed and that broke the spell you know, of this need. And that that scared me because it's been a long time since I've had that moment of madness and that overwhelming desire to drink. But I, you know, and after that, I was like, right, back up to lots of AA meetings. We're going to pick up a couple of sponsees, you know, because that always keeps you close to what your last drink is going to be like. And, And so, yeah, so that was quite a frightening thing. So, you know, I'm not. Yeah, with, I think uh, with those cravings, it's, it's all about, as you say, you know, just putting something in between. Because if we just react, then we're in trouble. But with you, you know, talking to your sponsor, writing out your reasons, just do something. And you know, I love the fact that even now you don't seem to have alcohol in the house. You know, let's let's make things as easy for ourselves as we can. Because you know, if you think, well, I've got to drive 200 miles to get a bottle of wine. <laughs> Not many people would get in the car. You did, but I did, you're, you're... you know, and that's the <laughs> level of insanity. I mean, I've since moved. I'm not in Scotland now. I'm in England, so you know, it wouldn't be that far to go and get alcohol. Um, you know, because there are 24-hour shops in the UK, uh, in England. Um, so it's there. You know, and the, my country's saturated in it, and it's you know, yeah. it's obsessed with it. So, and there's lots of adverts on TV about how much fun it is, and actually, I, it grinds my gears because it's not that fun. For most yeah. people, Christmas is horrific. Yeah. If you're in a toxic relationship, it's horrendous. Yeah, well, when I lived in uh, in the UK, because this Christmas thing is so mental over there, mm. I remember by uh, I'd see the decorations in the shops but in about August, September, mm. and I'd start thinking, oh, well, Christmas is nearly here. I might as well step up the drinking a bit because then I'll do dry January. It, gets into your head it's it's mad i'm going to drink january's booze now exactly. <laughs> so when i'm being deprived in january yeah it's mad isn't it it's totally mad <laughs> so apart from these kind of little slip-ups and a few cravings one slip-up sorry 
how long before you started to feel secure in your sobriety till you felt, I know we, we never should feel I've got this, but until you thought I can do this? I made a big decision at one year sober because I still had a lot of denial. I didn't, you know, I had to learn so much stuff. I really did. And at one year sobriety, I remember stood on my porch. I was living in a different house at the time. And uh, and I I was smoking a cigarette. And part of my brain was saying to itself, you've been sober a year now. You're fine to start drinking. You know, your body's had a break. It's recovered. You'll be able to drink normally now. All of those, again, those beliefs that we're told so often by other people. Oh, you'll be fine to drink. You've had a break. You know, you'll be, just take it easy. You know, just just, just one glass. Just one glass yeah. won't hurt. <laughs> all of that was going on, and the other part of me was all the AA stuff. You know, it was. Oh, I can only describe it as like a war between good and evil. And I was almost like this bemused bystander as the two sides of my brain went to battle. And I'd pretty, I, I was, think that there's a name for that. They call it cognitive dissonance. Have you heard that? Yeah, it's total cognitive the, dissonance. Yeah, the yeah. inner struggle. Yeah, and we all have it because we many of us. I heard this study the other day, you know, and it takes the average person eleven years uh, between recognizing that there's a problem and doing something about it. Mm. And during all that time, we've got this battle, you know, because our our prefrontal cortex is saying you've got to do something about your drinking, and there, your subconscious is saying, "But how will I have fun? I'll lose all my friends. How will I relax?" So you've got this war going on in your head, and that's oh, why. It, and it was palpable. You know, this yeah. wasn't a, a chat in my hat in my head. It was oh, a yeah. physical, visceral experience. And just at that moment, I was just like, "Okay, I'm going to pick up my one-year chip in the next coming days, and then come the weekend." I'm going to try the drinking. And I'd pretty much come to that conclusion. And this is where there but for the grace of God go I. My phone rang. And this woman said to me, you don't know me. Somebody gave me your number months ago and said you're a really good person to talk to about my drinking. And she went on to describe her drinking and what was going on. And the timing couldn't have been more perfect because it broke my spell. And it was like, oh, my God, I don't want what she has. And, of course, I arranged to take her to a meeting. It couldn't be that day. It was in a couple of days' time. I, you know, she was still in the throes of her drinking madness. And and I remember thinking, blimey, if, the, she, if I hadn't had that call, I've just decided to drink. Not realise that. And then later on that day, I, I drove off to a meeting, a good couple of hours drive away through some really beautiful countryside. And I love driving. And so I sort of made a bit of a day out of it. And... And I went to an AA meeting, you know, over the world, a couple of hours drive away. And I sat in a church pew and on the wall it said, there's no coincidences in AA. And I thought, OK, this I've got the message now. Now, at that time, and I didn't know this, and I do talk a lot about this in, when I share, is I had post-traumatic stress disorder and I didn't know it. So I was six months before I was diagnosed with for that. And once I got help for that, my life then started to radically change and improve. So I was about two and a half years sober when the promises start to really kick in for me, which I realised to a newcomer, anyone that's early on who's struggling, they're like, well, I haven't got two and a half years. I can't do this for two and a half years. But in those two and a half years, it's not like it was full throttle horrendousness. But I did go to a lot of meetings because it was the only time I ever felt sane. But my my recovery is definitely in the sometimes slowly department rather than the quick fix that I've seen other people have. But it doesn't matter. This is my journey and no one else's. Yeah. Everybody has to find what what works for them. Absolutely. The the good thing is that there's a lot of different 
methods out there these days. So mm. uh, I'm delighted to to hear your story. Um, let's uh, let's switch tack a little bit to this PCT that I'd never heard of before I came across you. Of course, now I know it stands for Pacific Crest Trail. I mean, how did you know about it? Why did it appeal? I, I didn't know a damn thing about it. Um, I now know it's the world's longest continuous footpath, uh, and it goes through the wild the wilderness of, of America from, from Mexico to Canada, to be precise. And a friend of mine had watched the film, a friend of mine that I'd met in AA had had, uh, had watched the film Wild and she kept banging on about how brilliant it was and I had to watch it and I was like, no, I don't. And she was like, yes, you do. And in the end she said, I dare you, I challenge you to watch it. And I was doing a year of challenges where other people tell me what to do and I go off and do it and I'd write an article about it. And, and so it's sort of, again, it's this idea of being more suggestible and so she said, go and watch this film and then go and watch the, uh, read the book and report back which one is better. And so she, she paid me to do this challenge. And of course, you know, I watched the film. Then I read the book. Thank God they changed the horse scene in, in, in the film because that still gives me nightmares. And, and then I ended up reading six more books because, you know, obsessional mind here. Um, I've got to know everything. And, uh, and I was just, it was like within a week, it was like really, I was really fascinated by the whole idea of people walking across the entire length of America. And I discovered that people actually filmed themselves so I could watch people's, you know, um, vlogs about their hikes. And I just loved it. I mean, I just, you know, I'm fat. I'm, I'm not fit. I live on the sofa. You know, I enjoy my food. <laughs> I'm sort of mid 40s. I mean, my, you know, I was coming up to my 40th sobriety. Um, so I was not someone who needed to be doing this. And yet one day I'd, I'd got into the bath and this thumbnail had popped up and it said how to apply for a PCT permit, just like that. And this guy was explaining the process. So I Googled, you know, the process and the only day of the year you could apply was that very day. And because of the time difference between California and the UK, it was six o'clock that night and it was like four o'clock in the afternoon. So I heaved my way out of the bath, ran up the stairs, absolutely, you know, completely as naked as the day I was born and then got on and did all these online courses and then got a golden ticket. And I mean, lots of people get, re you know, rejected and, and there's more people who apply than actually get a ticket. So it just felt like fate. And it was like, you know, I sat there sort of 10 minutes later, like, oh my God, I've got a ticket to walk across America. The weird thing was, the date I initially got was 23rd of March to start. And you have to start exactly when you when you agree to. How far in advance was that? This is six months in advance. So you've got a lot of time to change your mind. And, and it was like, well, I'll go a week ahead. And the week ahead was March the 17th. Now, March the 17th was my divorce date. March the 17th was the date I joined AA. And March the 17th was the date I was flying to America. I was like, well, this is just fate. And as it was, then the pandemic ruled up. And so I changed my flight to America and I ended up starting a little bit earlier than I'd intended or was permissible in the chaos of it all. So my first full day on trail had been March the 17th. And I just stood there a day. I'd got to the monument. So my first full day on trail and I was just bewildered that, you know, four years ago on that very day, I was the most I was in the darkest, most lost place a person could be. And now, four years later, here I was feeling more found than I'd ever you know, ever felt in my life and more, you know, sane than I'd ever felt in my life doing the most batshit crazy thing. And yes, I lost a lot of weight and I had a lot of thinking time. And, and so I ended up, you know, and it was tough. I mean, I was, I am not an outdoorsy girl at all. And I'd never lived in a tent properly. And, you know, and there was, it was a steep learning curve and it was, it was horrendous. But I also knew that it was going to be the adventure of a lifetime. 
it, it's very, very challenging. Most people don't get to Mexico it, because it's nothing like you think it's going to be. It's not that much fun. It's, it's bloody hard work. It's bloody exhausting work. It's very lonely at times. How so long did it take? It took five and a half months, all told. Uh, right. Pretty good going. Um, obviously, we were restricted by a visa. Um, you know, the, the steps, I, I love the way you um, kind of link it with the steps. Was that your intention when you left or did it come to you when you were no. on route? I knew I really wanted the, to try writing a book. And again, it mm. feels I feel very, very lucky. I had a very good 2020 and I realised I'm the exception, not the rule. And so I knew when I came back, I really wanted to write a book or give it writing a book a go and, and, and document this journey in a book. And I know I can be quite funny and, and that sort of thing. So I was like, right, I'm really going to rise to that challenge. And that'll be my subject matter. But I had no idea what the format of this book was going to be. And then it was only when we came, I came back and I moved into this place in Warwickshire. And of course, we're still in full lockdown. And so there's no work, there's no jobs. And it was just like, well, this is brilliant. You know, I've got all this time. I can sit here and write a book day after day after day. And it was just only when I was rereading my diary, it was like, this is the exact same journey that you go on when you when you go through the steps. The steps are a very natural progression of recovery, as is a, is a long distance walk. You know, you start off with lots of excitement and energy, which is like the pink cloud when you first come into AA. And then within a few weeks, it, you know, it gets pretty grotty. You, you're dirty. You're, you're fed up. You, you know, you're in that massive culture shock now. Has really hit home, which is just like being in step four. When you, you know, suddenly you've got to confront what your drinking has done for you, where your thinking has led you, which is why your drinking has been able to take total control of your life, and and really examine everything that you're doing. And I and I had a you know the same on the journey. I had to look at. I'm hanging out with these people whose ambition is not to get to Canada, really. Their realistic chances of getting to Canada are nil. And I'm hanging out with these people. Why am I doing that? And I'm getting annoyed with them and I'm getting frustrated. Well, look at my side of the street. What am I doing about this? You know, stop blaming everyone else, crack on. I'm I'm filthy. I'm cuts and bruises. So I do this inventory of, of all of my injuries. I look at my feministic principles versus my my body issues and I'm starting to learn I've got a new relationship with this body instead of loathing it for how it looks I'm starting to appreciate what it's able to achieve you know so I'm changing how I appraise my body and so you know and then again it's that big sort of right I've done the grotty stuff now let's just crack on and do the hard work which is get to Canada no matter what it takes which is that step six and that learning to change and learning to change how you think and feel you know, I get down the stairwell and, and I've got all these regrets about early on and how I'd behaved and how I hadn't seen my own defects. And, and I was really fed up with, you know, the fact because I'm now racing against time. Uh, so I've got to, again, take that responsibility and, and look at my side of the street. So that was a real growth. It was quite a dark period, but I grew a lot further down the trail because, you know, I know what I'm doing now. I'm in the habit of it. So I've just got my head to deal with. And then I get to, you know, to the end of it. And at 2,500 miles, Somebody had asked me a very serious question about hiking. And my initial reaction was, don't ask me. I'm a complete novice. And she looked at me and she said, you know everything. You know everything. You've walked 2,500 miles. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, so it was like learning that this imposter syndrome, I carried it with me that entire journey. And it was time to drop that rock. And so, when, you know, and that's just step 12 when you suddenly realise to somebody else's eyes, if you're new into recovery and you've only got a couple of months sobriety, you're new. 
the person we all look to for wisdom is the person with two months sobriety, not the person with 22 years of sobriety, because it's like, oh, they know what they're doing. They're, they're, they're experts. But I, when I'm new in, I, I can't conceive two months of sobriety, let alone a lifetime. I'm not interested in a lifetime, but I can't conceive that. So it's learning that I have my own sense of expertise in other people's eyes. Yeah, so it was a real epic journey. And I do think the first time, I mean, I believe in going round and round and round the steps. I don't think it's a one-stop job at all. And I and I really appreciated having a program that could organize my thoughts. So when it came to the book, it was like, oh my God, it's so obvious I've gone through this metaphorical step journey at the same time I've done the physical journey. So it became clear that let's just bring in everything I'd learned from the program into the journey and I'd promised my sponsor that you know because I was worried about how to live without AA quite frankly it's, it's a big part of my life and and I'd looked at you know I, I promised him I'd listen to a podcast today which is what I did when I, at least one podcast a day so I kept in touch with AA even though I was living in the wilderness via the medium of a podcast download you know again we've all had a pandemic these podcasts that you know, brilliant job for producing them are, are so important because it means you can access recovery 24 hours a day on your own time. You don't ever have to miss a great share again because you can listen to it over and over and over and over again. And so the pandemic has brought many silver linings for us in recovery. It has certainly accelerated an awful lot of people's drinking. Societies around the world are going to have to be picking up the pieces of alcohol abuse for years to come. But at the same time, recovery is is not just now located in a church basement. It's online in a way it's never been. And it's podcastable. And so it's downloadable. So I can carry these stuff with me no matter where you go. And my journey, my proof is even living alone in the empty American wilderness, I could still be in touch with with my clan of recovery, you know, supporters. So yeah, I'm very grateful to you and, and to others who make that possible. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Well, I'm very grateful for you for sharing your story. I mean, wow, 2,500 miles. I knew it was a long way. I hadn't quite absorbed how many miles. Did you ever feel like giving up? All the time. All the time, which is why it's so similar to, you know, to getting into recovery. Um, all, you know, I had some real dark moments out there where I just couldn't do it anymore. My brain was shot to pieces and my body was battered. And every single time I, I was at that point of, well, I've just got to quit now. I don't want to quit, but I've got to quit. Something would happen. And I, and I deal with it. So I won't spoil the book because, you know, those magic moments that happened that got me back into the right frame of mind, that got me back onto the trail, that kept me going, is exactly how recovery is. So just as you hit your darkest points in recovery, when you think, okay, I'm done, I'm beat, wait, that's when the magic happens. That's when something will just come out of left field that you never saw coming. It'll pick you up. It'll put you back on your feet. And it says, just keep walking a little bit. It doesn't matter how slow you are. It doesn't matter how hobbled you are. Just keep going because it gets better, you know. And I now, you know, now I've done it, I wake up every day with this self-esteem and this self-confidence that in 2020, I walked across an entire country on my own. And it's the second best thing I have ever done. 
It gives me so much self-respect and so much self-esteem. And I'm so excited, you know, I'm, I'm now con- considering walking from Canada to Mexico <laughs> on a different route um, next year, you know, visa permitting. And again, the red carpet's just being rolled out. So whether I've had all these obstacles, you know, I can't afford it necessarily. What will I do with my cat? I can't get a US visa. Well, within three weeks, every single one of those problems has evaporated. And so the chances are very high that I'm now going to go and walk from Canada to Mexico. I'm probably not going to write a book, but I probably might do a podcast because I think mm. it, it's such an epic journey. And, and I loved it when I was a kid listening to somebody else's. It was on the radio and they did like 10 minute spots around the world on a boat. And I love that adventure and just where is he today and how is he coping? And so you know, the, 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 that is the freedom of recovery is I can have ideas. We can all yeah. have ideas and drunks are brilliant for ideas. What we're really rubbish at is executing them. And Obviously, because there, there's no way you would have done that that no. journey if, you, if you'd still been drinking. I mean, it, it wouldn't really have crossed your mind for a start. Yeah, no. I've, I've witnessed, you know, so many lives change, you know, in big ways. Mm. And uh you know, we we always talk about sobriety as a journey. Mm. And I've always thought it's a bit of a cliche really, but I think you've you've shown me how um what a great analogy that is. It is a you, great analogy. You've physically yeah. done it, haven't you? Because mm. I hate the well, cliches, oh yeah, recovery's a journey. It's like, oh I know, I know. Every time <laughs> I say it all the time, every time I say it, I'm cringing inwardly. <laughs> but I won't anymore. <laughs> but, uh, let me ask you a last question. You like to be called a person irresponsible, whereas you strike me as an extremely competent and responsible person. Where does this tag come from and why well, do you like it? It's twofold. It is part of the, the culture of through hiking is that you have a trail name. And so my trail name was PI or person irresponsible. And walking through a pandemic at that time did feel a very irresponsible thing to do. You know, there were stay at home orders. And, it, and I, again, I have to deal with it in the book. Why did I continue when, quite frankly, Everybody else stayed home and, and did the right thing, inverted commas. Um, so my trail name is PI or person irresponsible. And, and it all, you know, but I was that before because I've got this little adventure company and, and I write articles about various sort of adventures and mental health and things. And I always say, if you want to complain, you need to email person irresponsible. And so I, I had this sort of complaints department with this, this person who didn't care, you know. Um, so I just carried on using that name as my trail name. It seemed logical given the circumstances. And the book is written by person irresponsible. And, and it's called Everything You Ever taught me and it, and it is this journey um so i just stuck with it i think it sums up you know that mad year of of and i think it sums up what it's like you know deep down as an alcoholic i'm actually just a very chaotic person who does a great job at pretending they've got they understand how the world works you know and i really yeah. don't like I say, the book is, is Everything You Ever Taught Me by Person Responsible. And the website is MLC, which stands for Midlife Crisis, on a quad.com. <laughs> wow, what a story. Let's pull out some key points. P.I. grew up in a drinking home and married a drinker. That's a familiar story. As we tend to seek out the familiar, we like to stay in our comfort zone. In her 20s, she doesn't recall being particularly worried about her drinking, although she does admit there were some incidents. Looking back now, she realises she was in deep denial, hanging around with other drinkers to normalise her behaviour. And as she got into her 30s, her hangovers got more severe, her marriage collapsed, and then she started drinking until she blacked out. 
It was that warning sign we often talk about. When we stop drinking to socialise and start drinking to cope. Unlike many drinkers, she fell into victim mode, blaming others. In her case, blaming the ex-husband. As she looks back on this period, she can see that alcoholism prevented any rational thought. She became so unhappy during this period, she didn't actually care what happened to her or what harm she was doing to herself with alcohol. Her moment of truth was a strange one. She never read romance or chick lit, but for some reason she got this urge to read Rachel's Holiday by Marianne Keyes. And at the end of the book, Marion had written about AE, so P.I. decided to call the helpline and talk to someone. As a result of this conversation, she decided she would try 30 days without alcohol. So she went to 30 AA meetings in 30 days and was thrilled to get her 30-day chip. She was slightly taken aback when one of the guys at the meeting said, well, now you have to do 60 days. But she decided to go for it. After all, physically, she already felt much better. P.I. loved the stories and the drama at AA. She loved the chips as well. She wasn't so keen on the solutions and tended to stop listening then. So she wasn't doing the work and unsurprisingly, she relapsed on day 72 to be precise. But the alcohol she drank didn't give her the relief she was looking for. So she went to another meeting and that night she heard a share that really resonated with her and she finally accepted that she was an alcoholic and then the work could begin. So that got her back on track and although she suffered from really bad cravings now and again, she learned how to break the spell as she puts it, whether that's by talking to someone or writing a list of reasons to be sober, she found a way to keep herself on track. As she hit one year sober, she started to hear a voice saying, surely you can have just one now. She also heard the voices explaining why that would actually be a really bad idea. As she said, she had a war going on in her head, full-on cognitive dissonance, as the psychologists call it. That made me think of the study by The Tempest, that it takes a person an average of 11 years from when they first realise they've got a problem to actually reaching out for some help. That's 11 years of listening to the battle between your rational mind and your limiting beliefs in your subconscious. That's exhausting, and so many of us have gone through it. So P.I. actually made the decision to get her one-year chip and then to try having a drink. But then she got a call from a sponsee asking for help. Listening to this person's struggle broke the spell broke the spell for her and made her realise that she didn't ever want to go back to those difficult early days again. And that's why at Tribe Sober we encourage our members to stick around even after they've got sober. Not only is it rewarding to be able to help and advise the newbies, but they remind you of how tough those early days are. After all, who wants to keep stopping and starting and doing the hardest bit again and again? We even have a six-month-plus group here at Tribe Sober, and the conversations are quite different on that group. The other day, we decided to add up all our years of sobriety, and we came to 184 years. Like many of us, P.I. found herself with time on her hands when she stopped drinking. She got inspired by a movie called Wild, and she decided to walk the world's longest footpath from Mexico to Canada. It's called the Pacific Crest Trail. 
We always say that your world will open up to new possibilities when you ditch the drink. And P.I. is a great example of that. As she told us, she was a lady who lived on the sofa. Ditching the booze meant she got up from that sofa and walked 2,500 miles. She was able to apply the lessons she'd learned in recovery during the walk. She gave us a nice analogy of the initial excitement at the beginning of the walk, the pink cloud, followed by the boredom and the difficulty and the need to just keep going. Not to mention the ever-constant urge to just give it up. She describes the walk as the second greatest achievement in her life after recovery. At Tribe Sober, we often say that sobriety is a superpower, and if we can do that, we can do anything. So do get hold of P.I.'s book, which is called Everything You Ever Taught Me. I've read it, and it's great. It's very funny, and it's full of wisdom and insight. Here at Tribe Sober, we're still busy with the development of our online course. Our testers are working hard and sending in their feedback. We'll be launching in July, so please watch this space. There'll be a special launch prize for Tribe Sober members, so it's a great time to join. Just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. And if you're in a hurry to get that journey started and you don't want to wait for the online course, then we do have a Zoom workshop coming up on the 25th of June. Just go to tribesober.com and hit our services and you'll see the workshops. So let me finish off now with a message from one of our chat rooms. Last weekend was Jubilee weekend in the UK, so I've selected a message with a bit of a Jubilee flavour. The message is from Janet. So Janet says, Just got round to reading the June edition of the fantastic Ola Sober magazine. Janet G's article is so timely for me, How to Stay Sober. I'm 68 and I live in the UK and I'm five months alcohol-free. We're in the middle of a four-day celebration of our Queen's 70 years in the top job, which involves much drinking. Socialising sober is daunting for me, but I never wake up next day wishing I'd drunk ethanol. It makes me realise that so often in the past, when I was looking forward to an event, a holiday, I was really looking forward to drinking. There's a street party for tomorrow, a hundred people. I'm ready to accept a little champagne in my glass for the royal toast. We will stand and take a drink. I'll keep my lips tight, shut and have a sniff and remember why I no longer drink. I'm not hiding, but I'm living and being grateful for the continuing acknowledgement that alcohol is so destructive. The wine witch and her great friend Moderation Mary have no place here. Oh, thank you, Janet, and well done. Coming up for your first soberversary now. So this week's giveaway is our ebook, 66 Days to Sobriety. We sell that book on Kindle, but we're giving it away absolutely free to any podcast listeners that care to write to me, Janet at tribesober.com. So don't forget to follow us and share the podcast and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. 
So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.